All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And uh, I'll just say that it's really good to be back. I appreciate the time off. I appreciate being able to go and do a little snowboarding with my family, but uh, it's really good to be back. And it's also really good that we avoided major bodily injury uh, on the snowboards. So we're back and we're ready to, to, to get after it here in 1 Samuel And the title of today's sermon is uh, Glory Presumed and Glory Departed. And um, we've been examining as we've studied 1 Samuel this this idea, how how is God going to bring his king out of this conflict until a time when there is no more conflict in creation? And what we're going to see in this portion of Samuel is that God is going to bring about his king because he's sovereignly working out his will, for his own glory, and cannot be manipulated in the process. Our God is working out his sovereign will to bring about his own glory and cannot be manipulated. And so um, when you look at Samuel 1 and 2 Samuel, a lot of times scholars talk about, uh, you know, there's three major sections, three major characters where you have the rise of Samuel, then the rise of Saul, then the rise of David. Um, but, But really... The main character of Samuel is, is really God Himself, and we're going to see how He sovereignly works out His plan uh, today in, in verse or chapter four, the entirety. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, uh, read the text, and read the text in its entirety. Pray, and then we'll uh, we'll get to work. Starting in First Samuel four, verse one b. Uh, so, here's God's holy and inspired and life giving word. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. 
I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your sons, your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For this man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for the pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending to her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these are dark verses. They're full of death. They're full of destruction. They're full of despair. They're full of the enemy conquering over your people. But Father, we know that your word is faithful and that you are working out even in the midst of death and defeat and darkness to bring about your own glory. But Father, we need your spirit to work in us so that we can see this glory. Give us heaven eyes. Give us heavenly eyes that we might see how you are working even in the midst of this destruction and darkness. Help us not to despair, Lord, but help us to know and believe and have full confidence that you who began a good work will see it through to the day of completion. That you are sovereignly working out your plan to your end for your purposes, for your glory and the good of your people. So, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend the reading and the preaching of this word so that we might be formed more to the image of your Son, Jesus. We love you and we pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Reuben Garrett Lucius Goldberg was born on July 4th, 1883 in San Francisco. And if you don't know that name, if you're not familiar with that name, you might be more familiar with the name that he became most associated with, the name Rube Goldberg. And if you don't know that name, um, I can assure you that you are familiar with the concept for which he became famous, and that is the Rube Goldberg machine. Uh, If you've ever seen the movie um, The Goonies... It's the contraption that opens the gate. If you've ever seen the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, it's the contraption that gets the Zelensky's mail. Or if you've most recently watched The Grinch with your kids or you just like the movie because it's really good uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch as the voice of the Grinch, it's the way that Max makes the Grinch's coffee in the morning. A Rube Goldberg machine was invented by this cartoonist, Rube Goldberg, and it depicted an ordinary event accomplished by an unnecessarily intricate uh, contraption where you would roll a ball, it would knock something over, it would light a candle that would blow up a balloon, that would something, and then a napkin wiped his face. It was this unnecessarily intricate contraption that accomplished an ordinary task. It is not unreasonable to think that many people today approach their faith like a Rube Goldberg machine. 
where they have this idea that if I do this complicated set of things, I can get God to love me. I can get God to forgive me. I can be right with God and I can live a good and full and happy life. So we approach our God with this idea that if I input something, go through this series of machinations, the output will most assuredly be God blessing me. In fact, that's exactly what we see here in the the book of Samuel in chapter 4, where we see God's people approach him with this presumptive glory, like they can manipulate their God into doing what they want. And then we see that the end result there is disastrous for them. But despite of that, God is not done working, even though we so wrongly approach him. Our God is gracious and steadfast in his love towards us. So let's look at how God's people presume this glory in verses 1 through 11. Um, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel opens with kind of three sharp, strong points. The first thing you'll, you should notice is that Samuel's gone. Verse 1a of chapter 4, the word of the Lord went to all of Israel, or the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is the end of the rise of Samuel, but now all of a sudden in verse 1b, Samuel's gone. In fact, the next three chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, are all devoid of Samuel. And scholars call this the, the Ark narrative. Uh, no longer is Samuel the main character, as it were. The Ark is now the main character, as it is mentioned 12 times in this chapter. The second thing that you should notice uh, with the silence of Samuel, the arrival of the Ark, is also the arrival of the historic enemy of God's people, the Philistines. The last time we saw the Philistines uh, was in Judges when San- when uh, when Samson, the judge, was, was fighting against them. And so this is the first time that the Philistines are going to be featured in Samuel, and they will prominently feature throughout the narrative as it goes forward. And the third thing that we see is that there is this incredibly presumptive attitude that Israel has about their God. You see, they line up for battle against the Philistines about 20 miles away from Shiloh, and they go and they fight, and they are robustly defeated. Not real, I mean, they're defeated, but 4,000 or four, four units of soldiers are defeated. And so they go back to the camp, and the elders ask, Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines today? And so in this reflection, there's this theology where they understand that God and his goodness is sovereign over even this defeat. And so they know that God is sovereign. They wonder why they have been defeated. And they go, I got it. We didn't have the ark We didn't have the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. If we go get that, surely God will give us victory. I'm going to pause there. And kids, I want to ask you a question. Uh, Kiddos, do you have anything in your house that you look at and you remember somebody? Like a keepsake, a, a, a piece of jewelry, a picture. Do you have any keepsakes in your home that help you remember things? A picture. Is this too abstract of a question? Maybe nobody has a keepsake, a picture of your grandma or something. All right. That's okay. Maybe you guys just don't want to remember anything. That's fine, I guess. Um, we, you, your parents have iPhones with a thousand photos on them. That, that's how you'll remember everything. All right. That's fine. The Ark of the Covenant was something of a keepsake. If you recall the story of the Exodus, when God delivered his people from slavery, um, gave them, uh, revealed himself at Sinai, he gave them instructions on how they were then to relate to him. Build a tabernacle. Build a tent. 
the priests were going to wear these clothes. And you have to build this thing, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, those ten rules, those ten laws that I gave you inscribed on two stone tablets, those are going to be in the Ark of the Covenant. That's representing the revelation of God to his people. And that's going to go with you wherever you go, and that's going to go in the the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And not only is it the revelation of God, where the two tablets, the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments go, but the top of the Ark of the Covenant was a golden lid. And on the golden lid, uh, there are cherubim around it. And this golden lid was not called the lid. It was not called the top. It was called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, once a year, uh, in Leviticus 16, we see this on, on the Day of Atonement, the priests would go in and would sprinkle the blood of the covenant on the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of God's people. So here in the Ark of the Covenant, we see that it is the coming together of God's revelation to His people in the Ten Commandments, but also the redemption that God purchased through the death of His sacrificial animal. So we have redemption and revelation coming together in the Ark of the Covenant. And His people think, if we have that the presence of God with us in his revelation and his redemption, we will surely be victorious. Because this wasn't just a thing that sat idly by. This, the Ark of the Covenant we see in the book of Numbers, it was actually being carried by the priests, leading them towards a resting place in the wilderness. And we see in the book of Joshua, when, when the Israelites were crossing the Jordan River, they carried the ark, and they carried it, and it stopped the waters of the River Jordan so they might cross into the Holy Land. And you saw that when they were entering the Holy Land, and God gave them this command to go drive out every pagan inhabitant, so this is your land for you, they marched around the walls of Jericho, holding the Ark of the Covenant. And it's not by military might that they broke those walls down. It was the presence of God and their faithfulness to His command. Blow trumpets, march seven times, and shout. And those walls came crumbling down. This is the powerful manifestation of their covenant God with His people. And they say, if we get that, it'll save us from the Philistines. Now, when we look at this story... And we hear about this revelation of, oh, we'll go get the ark. We are then met with the two named characters thus far in the narrative. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And that, my friends, is a bad foreshadowing. If you remember Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were the ones that were um, usurping their usurping God's authority, they were they were manipulating the people of God. They were using their positions of authority to abuse uh, their authority by taking from God. They were taking all the best meat. They were sleeping with the women at the the tent of meeting. They were they were bad and they were wicked men. And so the the, the framework that we are given here by the author of Samuel is that God's people are acting as if the Ark of the Covenant is a is a trinket that they can take and they can use as a talisman to ensure the defeat of the Philistines and ensure their own victory. Even in, in the way that it's written, um, oh gosh, where is it? In verse, 
Uh, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies in verse 3. There's even a, an ambiguity in verse 3 textually. It could be translated he, meaning God, but most likely given the context, they are referring to specifically the power of the Ark rather than the power of God. So the framework here we are given is that these evil, wicked men, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are taking this sacred representation of God revelation and redemption of his people and are saying we can control this we can use this we can use this to leverage our own glory and our own accomplishment like a trinket like a healing crystal or something and so they bring the ark into the camp and there were shouts there was rejoicing just like Jericho there was encouragement the people of God saw this representation of God and they presumed that the presence of the ark would bring them victory and that Shouting, that elation made its way over to the camp of the Philistines. And the Philistines heard it, and in their excellent pagan theology, they understand that a God has come into their camp. They know the story. They have at least somewhat familiarized themselves with the story of the Hebrews. They know that the Hebrews God did something amazing in Egypt. They know that the the God of the Hebrews defeated the gods of the Egyptians, and so they were afraid. And they knew, because they were good pagans, that the physical representation of the God was the same thing as the God itself. And they were also very good polytheists, so they assumed that there were multiple gods. And when they heard the shouting of the Israelites, when they heard the shouting of the Hebrews, they assumed that their gods had come into their camp. Therefore, they had to stir themselves up and act like men to defeat them. And so what we need to look here in this text is that functionally, the Israelites and the Philistines are acting the same. God's people, in effect, are acting like pagans, thinking that they can take this physical representation of God and make it do something that they want. This is exactly what every pagan religion does. They offer sacrifices to their gods to manipulate their gods to to make something happen. That is what the Philistines did, and we'll see in the next chapter when we learn about their god Dagon the pagan religions would sacrifice to their gods to make the gods of fertility have women give birth. The gods of rain make it rain. The gods of of the harvest make them produce food. So the whole idea of a pagan religion is to do religious activities to manipulate gods to do what you want them to do. And that's exactly what Israel is doing here, acting like pagans. And so they fight, and there is such a great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers fall, and every man returns to his home. There's this, there's this idea here that the slaughter is so complete, so humongous, that the, that the army is disbanded, and every man goes back to his house because the Philistines so thoroughly routed God's people. And then in those 30,000 foot soldiers who fall, there are two names that get brought up. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Great was the fall of Israel this day. So, the implication here for this text, the implication here for this text is that we cannot, as God's people, act like our faith is a Rube Goldberg machine. We cannot take the things that God gives us as good gifts and use them to manipulate God. Um, think about what we, what we confessed earlier in the service about the sacraments. The sacraments don't work because they're sacraments. 
They don't work like magic. Communion doesn't strengthen your faith just because you eat some bread and drink a little cup of wine. The sacraments are only work because of the faith that you have in Christ, not in the faith in the sacrament, nor in your ability to take it properly. Your faith is in Christ, not the sacrament. And so there is no such thing in Christianity where do this thing, input something, outcome guaranteed of salvation, except you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the only guarantee. If you, if you repent and believe, you will find salvation. That is the only guarantee. There is no guarantee that you baptize your baby and that baby gets magically washed with away original sin and that baby is going to magically grow up and be a Christian. No, you still have to do the hard work of discipling, of preaching the gospel, of forming and shaping. There is no guarantee... Um, that you take communion, right, and that you're magically strengthened in, in your faith. You have to approach the table with faith in Christ wrought by the Holy Spirit. Because remember, those elements, those things that we use as, as sacraments, water and bread and wine, those are signs and those are seals. A sign is not the thing signified. Baptism with water is not salvation. It is a sign of being buried with Christ in death and being raised in the newness of life. Communion is not re-sacrificing Jesus. Communion, the bread and wine, that's a sign of his body and blood. And it's sealed by the Holy Spirit to work in you by grace through faith. And so... I don't know where this came from. I have some ideas, but I won't share them now. But we have this, this framework that we've kind of imbibed somehow in American evangelicalism where if I do the right thing, God will love me. If I do enough good things, God will forgive me. If I do enough bad things... I'm going to go to hell because God's not going to forgive me. And so we have this framework where we can manipulate God into loving us or forgiving us based on our behavior um, or or even our, our religious doctrine. But that is not what the Bible teaches. We cannot manipulate God into loving us. We can only repent and believe and cast ourselves upon him in mercy, hope that he is faithful to us and believe that he's faithful because his word says he will be. And so there should be a humility that we operate with then. You can't save yourself. You can't get God to love you any more than he's going to. But there also should be an encouragement that you don't have to save yourself. You don't have to get God to love you because he's going to do that because he is covenantally faithful. And if you love Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, all the promises of God, all the faithfulness of God belongs to you. And you don't have to manipulate God because your God is good and he loves you. And so there's a warning here in this passage. We cannot manipulate God. But there's hope in this passage because you don't have to because he sent his son Jesus to love you. And so we see as the text unfolds, as the narrative unfolds, we're going to move from death on the battlefield, death from the Philistines, death of Hophni and Phinehas, to death at home. And we're going to look at the glory departing from Israel. In verse 12, we see a man of Benjamin ran from the battlefield and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. So he's 
He's either in a posture of grieving or he's been beat up from the battle. Either way, he, he runs 20 miles in one day um, and he goes back to Shiloh uh, to report of all that's happened. And, and we see that Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching and his heart is trembling for the ark of God. Now, kids, I'm going to ask you another question. Hopefully this one lands. Um, now that Christmas is over and it's the new year, what's something that you're waiting for? What's something that you're looking forward to? Anna, your birthday. That's a good one. Amelia, what about you? Easter. Oh, you're a very religious household. Uh, uh, Graham, what about you, buddy? Christmas again? There's just no chill in you, huh? It's like well, Christmas next year. Let's go. All right. Anybody else waiting for something? Yeah. Calvin, your birthday. Oh, lots of birthdays. You guys all have birthdays, huh? Margaret, what about you? You're, oh, another Christmas. Okay, all right. That's ex- you're going to wait a while. All right. Anybody else waiting for anything? All right, Leo. Halloween. Wow, very cool. Um, I'll talk to your dad about that later. <laughs> um, yeah, so like there are things in your life that you're waiting for that you get excited about that you, that you can't wait till it happens. And here in this narrative, we see that Eli is sitting there on his seat and he's by the gate and his heart is trembling for the ark of God. Now, the irony here is that his heart should be trembling for his sons, but that is ultimately going to be their downfall. But he at least has enough goodness and wisdom as the judge of Israel for 40 years that something is up with the ark, and he's waiting for news. He wants to hear what's going on. And as the runner comes in, another sweet bit of irony, he runs past Eli. He doesn't see Eli sitting there at the gate. He runs past and goes into the town, and he tells everybody what happened. And Eli only finds out when he hears the uproar. And so there's this kind of consistent theme that Eli, the priest, is slow on the uptake. He didn't understand what Hannah was doing. He didn't understand or discipline his sons as they were taking advantage of their power and abusing people in the temple. He didn't understand that God was calling Samuel. So here's Eli, 98 years old fully blind in his eyes and just as ever spiritually blind and just as ever not being seen because he is kind of weak and ineffective. And that's kind of the picture that we get here, sitting on a seat, not in power, not in authority, and he gets passed by. And so finally he gets the news and he asks the the man what happened. And the man reports to him, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also... Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For this man was old and heavy. There's a bleak picture of finality here, where Eli has kind of been increasingly growing older and weaker and more decrepit, And he's waiting, and finally he hears this news of his sons dying, and the ark of God is captured, and that is kind of it for him. So this is the end of an era. Forty years this man has judged Israel, and finally he's died in weakness and kind of disrepute and shame. But it doesn't stop there. He has a daughter-in-law. 
the wife of Phineas, who's pregnant. And if you remember the beginning of this narrative, it started with Hannah, who wanted a baby so desperately, who went and prayed before the temple, prayed to the Lord that she would have a baby. And so there's a big deal having a baby in this narrative. And so the daughter-in-law of Eli, Phineas's wife, she's pregnant. And when she hears the news, she doesn't fall over and break her neck, but the birth pains come upon her. And the idea here is that, that she's going to give birth prematurely, and she's so full of spiritual anguish and emotional anguish and then her body is in physical anguish she's bowed down with the pains and in the midst of this suffering the women attending to her say those glorious words that every Israelite woman wanted to hear don't worry you're having a son but she says nothing she does nothing she grieves she names him Ichabod which literally translates to, where is the glory? Or the glory has departed. Think of the contrast between Samuel's birth and Ichabod's birth. Hannah, for this child I prayed, and I gave him back to the Lord. His name is Samuel, meaning I've asked of him from the Lord. And it is glorious. She wrote a whole chapter of song about Samuel being born. And here we have Ichabod's birth in the midst of this death and darkness. And his name is Ichabod, the glory has departed. Where is the glory? It's not here. And what we need to see in the births of these two children, in the one, the promise of God is realized. But in the other, also, the promise of God is realized. Because if you remember, there was a promise made about the sons of Eli. In fact, that what the author is doing here is there's actually a play on words here between uh, the word heavy and the word glory. In the Hebrew, they're very closely related. Um, glory is the word um, kavod, and heavy is the word kaved. And so what he's saying here is that, uh, if you remember in, in chapter 2, um, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were fattening themselves up. They were stealing the, the food from God's people as they were sacrificing at the temple, and they were, they were making themselves fat and sleek in an inappropriate way. And so they were literally making themselves heavy. And God, in his judgment against Eli's household, said, I will honor who I will honor. I will cavode who I will cavode. And I will make light who I will make light. And so here we kind of have the fullness of that Eli in his heaviness, in his, his misgained honor, dies. But also, Ichabod is born, and there's this question of where's the glory? And the answer is, with God. Because even in the midst of this sin... God is going to glorify whom he's going to glorify, and he's going to make light who he's going to make light. And the promise of God against Eli was what? Your two sons will die on the same day. So even in the presumptive nature of Israel taking the ark and saying, we're going to manipulate God with this trinket, God in his faithfulness is still bringing about his plan for his own glory, even though it looks like the glory of God is departing from Israel. Even though it looks like nothing good is possibly happening, we know that God is still at work because His promises are true and His word is faithful and He will glorify who He will glorify and He will make light who He will make light. And we know that because of what we said in our call to worship, that the earth is the Lord's 
and the fullness thereof. Our God is not contained in a box. Our God is not contained in a tent. Our God is not contained in a building. Our God is not contained in Shiloh, in Israel, in any corner of the world. Our God is in the whole world and the fullness thereof. And he will not leave nor forsake his people. Because along with that promise of I will make light who I will make light and I will make heavy who I will make heavy. And I will honor who I will honor. The promise of God says I will raise up a faithful priest in my house a faithful priest to do my word, to preach my word, to do my will. And he will bring that plan about even through the sinfulness of his people. Now, the implication of this is so important for us. It's so important for us. You out there in the pew and me right here, up up here, we cannot mess up God's plan. You cannot thwart God's plan. You are not significant enough to mess up God's plan. So that, that actually matters because, let, let me just say this. Um, I know several people, um, myself included, who are often afraid of evangelizing. I, I don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you can probably relate. You're probably sometimes afraid to talk about Jesus in front of people that don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you don't want to look stupid. You don't want to look foolish. A lot of times people are afraid of saying the wrong thing. Right. Like, I don't want to try to evangelize this person because I don't want to say the wrong thing and then like irreparably make make them damned to hell forever. Like, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing and be the reason why they're not a Christian. I want to give you freedom and encouragement, Christian disciple. You cannot thwart the plan of God. You are not good enough to do that. You're not smart enough. You're not important enough to do that. So with freedom and joy, go evangelize. You can't mess it up. You cannot mess up the plan of God. Parents, I'll say this to you. We are petrified, right, of our kids messing up, right? We're like, we agonize over how are we going to school our kids? Are we going to homeschool? Are we going to private school? Are we going to send them to public school? You cannot irreparably damage your children, parents. God is sovereign over even them. And so whether you choose to homeschool or private school or public school, the Lord, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. You are not going to irreparably damage your children. College kids, I know you're right now, you're working on your resumes and your CVs. and you're, you're, The next thing is so important, right? Like, what am I going to do for work? How am I going to pay off this debt that I've accumulated? And you're maybe so worried about, I've got to get the right job and get the right internship and do the right thing. You can't mess it up. God has you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, even your resumes, even your internships, even your jobs. When we see God's plan unfolding like this for his own glory and for our good, we need to have the confidence that actually isn't just waxing theological. That's deeply practical. The Lord has you, and you cannot thwart his plan. It should humble you as well. and like it, You should say, I... I, I, I think that I can mess this up, but I really can't. But, but you cannot, because God is sovereign. So as we look at this, you have the freedom as a Christian to make all kinds of choices. You have the freedom to homeschool your kids if you want. You have the freedom to send them to private school if that's what's best for you. You have the freedom to, to go to a public university and you know, to, to major in art history or engineering or whatever you want to major in. You have the freedom to do this because God is sovereign and his plan is unfolding just as it should in his own time. And this is a really important thing that we need to think about, too. Even when you act unwisely. 
even when you sin, even when you doubt, even when you do the wrong thing, God is sovereign over even that. And out of that can still work to will and to work for his own pleasure. Think about this. When we take the sacraments, when every week when we do communion, we talk about the words of institution from 1 Corinthians. And I do something called fencing the table, right? Where I say, if you eat and drink this unworthily, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. So even those signs and seals that God gives us, approaching them wrongly, there's still an act of God's will unfolding in that moment of swift and sure justice against sin. So even when you sin, God is still working out his plan and will chastise you and will discipline you and will teach you, but he will not forsake you. But for those who don't belong to him, they will experience judgment. And so even the sin in the world, we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit. I don't know how it works. I don't know why it works the way it does. But even our sin somehow mysteriously is a part of God's unfolding plan according to his own sovereign purposes. And so we have the freedom to act with wisdom, but we have the security of knowing that in Christ, because we are found secure in Christ, we are forgiven even as we sin against God and each other. So even in your sin, God is consistent, God is faithful. God's word and promises are reliable and they work even in the midst of the darkness of human rebellion and rejection. Why? How can we say that? How can we say that when our own lives are testimony to such fickleness and such rebellion and, and such, such unwise choices and so much anger and hate and lust and greed and glut, how can we say that God is still working in us and through us and through his people? Because exactly what we said earlier, our God came near, not in a box, but in a boy, right? What do we just celebrate? Christmas and the incarnation when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we saw what? We saw his glory as in the only God, full of grace, full of truth. The Logos, the word of God incarnate, more full of a revelation than ten words inscribed on tombstone tablets. We have the fullness of God's revelation that is drawn near to us in Christ. But we have an even greater redemption than some sprinkles of blood on a golden seat of a box. We have the blood of Christ poured out rich and free on the cross for us sinners that we might be forgiven and redeemed. And all of the curse, all of the curse of that law that we've transgressed goes on our Lord Jesus. So we have the fullness of God's revelation and the fullness of redemption meeting at the cross. And on that cross, that is the bleakest and darkest day in human history. When the only truly innocent person that ever walked the face of the earth was brutally and unjustly murdered and the sky went dark. And that happened, according to Peter in Acts 2, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The darkest things that we can imagine are being worked out for God's own glory in his own time for our good. 
and we can do nothing to manipulate it, but we can, in faith, look to our God who says, I am with you even until the end of the age and believe that he's good and know that he who began a good work in us will see it through till the day of completion. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is a great mystery how you work out your plan even in the midst of sin and suffering and death and despair and darkness. But Lord, we're so delighted that you have. We're delighted that you have not forgotten us, that you have not forsaken us, that you have not left us in our sin and death, but that you have sent such a Savior as our Lord Jesus to come and rescue us from our sin, to ransom us from the fall, so that we might be washed clean by his blood and made new and restored to the image of the glory until you come back and make all things new, Jesus. We love you, and we pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen.